on Monday morning, I went out to get my paper, as always. Uh, they throw it onto the driveway. The wind was blowing and uh, must have blown my paper away. Uh, that happens once in a while when the wind is blowing. It usually goes over into my neighbor's yard just a little bit. So I walked over into the neighbor's yard. I always feel a little bit strange doing that, you know, like, like you're stealing from them. And finally got a chance to ask my neighbor this week if they get a paper or not. Now I know they don't. So if there's a paper in their yard, it's mine. So I walked over there, kind of looking around. I can't find it. And as I turned around, I saw the sign, two signs. They have two signs in their window that says, Beware of Dog. <laughs> and uh, they don't really need that sign for me because I've had a close encounter with one of their dogs. Uh, they have two bulldogs, a big male and a kind of a medium-sized female. And I was taking that female back home after she escaped once, and the male took uh, exception to my having my hands on the female dog, and uh, uh, I've learned to be very careful around dangerous dogs. I've had dogs that bit people. I've been bitten by a dog or two. You don't have to tell me to be careful around dogs. I'm always careful around dogs. It's fascinating to me the, the language that God uses at times in the Scripture, and as we come to Philippians 3 today, he says, Beware of the dogs. He actually calls some people dogs and says you need to beware of them. And uh, we want to read this scripture and understand who they are and how we can beware of the dogs. Philippians 3. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anybody else thinks he could have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. What is the dangerous dog that Paul is warning us about? I believe it's summarized up in two phrases. The first phrase is this, rejoice in the Lord or have confidence in the flesh. We see these phrases, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, verse 3. We are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ and in contrast have no confidence in the flesh. The essence of putting confidence in the flesh is exemplified for us by Paul, starting in verse 4. And he lays out his testimony before he came to Christ. And he says, if anybody has confidence in the flesh, I could have more confidence. Now he's, he's making a uh, um, sort of an exaggerated, um, sarcastic remark. Because he's, he's going to compare himself to the teachers who were pushing certain doctrine. 
And he says, if they have confidence in the flesh, I have more so. First of all, he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. Now, what that meant for a Jewish believer to say, or, or a, a, what we would call an Old Testament uh, follower of God, it meant he was born Jewish and his parents lived according to the law. You see, you could become a Jew by conversion as an adult. But then this would not be true. And so he says, if you want to talk about how Jewish you are and how much you follow the law, first of all, I was circumcised on the eighth day. That's what God prescribed. All the boys were supposed to be circumcised on the eighth day. He says, I am of the stock of Israel, which means both my parents were Jewish. I'm not, uh, you know, half and half or whatever. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, the tribe of Benjamin was special for a number of reasons. First of all, Benjamin, as the head of that tribe, was the only patriarch or the only head of a tribe born in the promised land. All of the rest of them were born outside. Secondly, Jerusalem was located within the boundaries of Benjamin. The tribe of Benjamin gave Israel its first king, Saul. And, of course, that was the namesake of Paul before he became a Christian. The tribe of Benjamin remained loyal to King David, the greatest king that Israel ever had. The tribe of Benjamin stayed intact after the captivity. Now, the tribe of Judah did as well, but Benjamin is one of those. Mordecai was the deliverer of Israel as a person in the Persian kingdom. You remember that story in the, in the book of Esther? Mordecai was of the tribe of Benjamin. Um, Benjamin and Judah were the two tribes together who, who formed the rebuilt Israel after the captivity. And so he's of the tribe of Benjamin, and then he says, I am a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I'm as Jewish as you can possibly be, he says. Now, he says, and all of those things, by the way, uh, all of these first four things were things that were given to him. He did not do anything to get them. They came from his parents and from his parents' following of the law and so on. Um, those are just uh, inherited blessings. But now we go on to his own personal effort. <clears throat> and he says, as to the law, a Pharisee. The Pharisees prided themselves on following all the law to the, to the letter of the law, as we say. They even created extra rules to help them follow the rules. Now that wasn't right. But he says, if you want to judge how how much I followed God according to human standards, I followed it strictly. As to zeal, in other words, as a Pharisee and a Jewish person, he was so zealous, so excited about what, what he believed was God's will that he persecuted the church because he believed the church was wrong. As to the righteousness found in the law, blameless. Now, there's, you need to understand something. Be careful here. He didn't say he was sinless. What he says is, if you want to judge me by the human standard of the law, you will find me to be blameless. Now, even so, that, he really had to work hard to achieve that kind of reputation. And he puts it this way uh, about this whole matter of living in the law and living as a Pharisee. My manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. He makes a fascinating statement. He says, all of you people out there who are opposing me, you know how I used to live. Uh, I, I don't know. You know, when, when a guy runs for a president of the United States, they look into every single thing in his background. Nothing is hidden unless 
somebody collaborates to hide it. But, but they look into all of these things, and, and embarrassing things come out, and they have to deal with it. It would be like that. The Apostle Paul was such a prominent person before he came to Christ that everybody knew what kind of a Jewish person he was. He says, you all know. They knew me from the, from the beginning, and if they were willing to testify that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. He said, I, if you could possibly have confidence in the flesh, I could, because according to the strictest letter of the law, that's how I lived. Now, here's the point he's getting to. That little phrase in verse 3, having confidence in the flesh, in physical, in our physical existence. See, we can look at, we could look at that list, we could look at that list and go, oh, that's wrong. Persecuting the church, that's wrong. But we look at the rest of this list and we say, well, he was Jewish and that's kind of the way they were. But that's not the point that he's making here. The point that he's making is this. The people who were coming to the church at Philippi were trying to say, you can gain salvation by the possession of certain qualities and activities. In other words, you can earn your salvation. And the Apostle Paul says, no, that is wrong. The fallacy of earning your salvation is captured by this passage right here. Certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And some of the sect of the Pharisees who believe, now they're believers in Christ, you got that? These are believers in Christ, said it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now at this point in the development of Christianity, we can understand these people as being sincerely mistaken. They had been living all of their lives and they had uh, thousands of years of history behind them of God saying, here, Jewish people, here is the law, live this way, offer these sacrifices. And so they came along and said, yes, Jesus died for our sins, but we still have to keep the law. Law and faith together in order to gain salvation. Now what happened in Acts 15 is they convened a church council. So the apostles came together, the prominent people came together who were, who were godly men, and they discussed all this, and when they got to the end, they said, no, 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 Christ is the end of the law to everyone who believes. And so no, you do not have to follow the law and believe in Jesus to be saved. Now that should have put an end to it, but it didn't. And some of those Maybe some of these very same people, if not them, some other people, kept saying, you have to do the works of the law in order to be saved. You have to do things to earn favor with God. And by the time the book of Philippians is written, it's about, uh, let's say, 30 years later than Acts 15. And so this has been going on. And it's still going on today. And it comes, uh, and, and here's the, uh, the summary statement that you might want to write down. The dangerous dog Paul was warning the Philippians and us about is the idea 
that you have to do things to earn salvation. You have to do things to earn salvation. In particular here, it revolved around the Old Testament law. What's fascinating is the same thought pattern is still going on today. You have to do things to earn salvation. The most common way that it comes out is this right here. You ask people, do you know you're going to heaven when you die? Well, yeah, I think so. Well, why? Well, I keep the Ten Commandments. And it's very common for people to say, well, you know, there's you know, something in the Bible about the Ten Commandments, and so that's God's will, and so I'm going to keep the Ten Commandments, and I'm going to get to heaven. Um, that's a common thought pattern. My guess would be that a lot of people, excuse me, a lot of people who think that way are people who don't go to church and they are uneducated, but they've picked this up. Now, uh, secondly, how does it come into our culture today? There are many churches that have to-do lists. Okay? Now, most of those churches are false churches. Okay? There are some just about within shouting distance of us up the hill near where I live, and they've got a whole list of things you've got to do, and they say supposedly if you do all these things, you're going to make it on to, to a divine state for your life and so on. You know, and we could, we could list many of those, uh, all kinds of false churches. But the real danger here are those churches who call themselves Christian and yet teach that you have to do things to earn or merit salvation. One of those is the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Now, I, I know full well that uh, I'm opening myself up for some criticism here. I have friends in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. I have had over the years. And I know that they teach that Christ died for your sins and you need to believe it. But I also know that they teach the keeping of the Old Testament law. We have an acquaintance who, who laid this out. And, and essentially, you have to follow the path. Let me see if I put it here. I did. Here's the path that it goes on, and, and it'll show you their thinking. All truly saved people. In other words, they would say, if you truly believe in Christ and become a new creature in Christ, they say, you will follow the law. Now, they don't follow the whole law. They don't offer sacrifices. But they do follow the dietary parts of the law. And they do especially follow the Sabbath law that you have to worship on Saturday. Now let me just give you a clue right off the bat. Saturday was never a day of worship in the Old Testament. It was a day of... And the book of Hebrews says that when we believe in Christ, we gain a Sabbath rest. You know what that means? It means we stop working and worrying and we start resting in Christ. That's what it really means to keep the Sabbath. But they would say all truly people follow the law, including the Sabbath law. They would say that worshiping on the Sabbath is in the law, so you're mandatory to do it. If you're saved, you will worship on the Sabbath. If you don't worship on the Sabbath, you're not saved. Now, I know this for a fact out of at least one person's mouth. Okay? So I'm not, I'm not blowing smoke here. I'm not making stuff up. Now, I also know that there are varieties of folks in that church who have varieties of beliefs. I understand that. But the key thing here is bringing law-keeping together with grace. And God says, no, can't be done. It can't be done. There are churches uh, in, the Christian, in a more Christian tradition who would say you have to be baptized and believe to get saved. Now, I believe baptism is mandatory as an act of obedience for the Christian, but it is not part of our salvation. There is no 
physical act we can do to merit God's favor. The church that perhaps is the most famous famous that would call itself a Christian in this tradition is the Roman Catholic Church. Now, there's a, their, their doctrine goes in a very, a, a very peculiar and tricky manner, but it goes like this. Yes, Christ died for your sins. Yes, you have to believe it. Yes, salvation is by grace, but you have to merit or deserve grace. And the only way you can merit or deserve grace is to do the things that they have prescribed. And, of course, nobody is going to live righteously enough to merit enough grace to go straight to heaven. So when you die, you will go to a place where you will be cleaned up further by virtue of suffering so that you deserve to go to heaven. The dangerous dog that Paul was warning the Philippians and us about is the teaching that you have to earn salvation. You have to earn salvation. Why is this so dangerous? Well, some people embrace this and say it makes perfect sense. They would say, you know what, that makes sense to me because there is no free lunch. And they would look humanly and say, you know, you, you don't get stuff for free as a human being. And, and I would certainly agree with that. You have to work for things. Yet that doesn't change the fact that God says you cannot work for your salvation. Listen to this passage. We who are Jews by nature, the Apostle Paul, he's talking about being ethnically or racially a Jew, and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law. You see, here is the, here is the mistake that even the people in the time of Paul missed Nobody ever got saved by keeping the law. God didn't give them the law so that they would do a bunch of things and earn heaven. That was never the case. A man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ that we might be justified by faith, for by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified. The simple truth is this. Salvation cannot be earned. Salvation cannot be earned. The false teachers in the time of Christ and today want us to think we can become children of God by earning favor with God. But here's why it can't happen. We are all like an unclean thing, and all of our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf. He said, all of us human beings in our natural condition, we're already dirty spiritually, morally. And so when us dirty human beings do something righteous and offer it to God, it's tainted from the beginning. When you get a jar of jam out of the fridge and you open it up and you get that fermented smell and you look and you see gray fuzz around the edge, do you think you can root around and find some really good jam in the corner? Or do you go, away with you! <laughs> I never knew you! <laughs> okay, that's you. 
That's you trying to earn favor with God. You have got decay. The word filthy rag, a real literal interpretation would be dirty diapers. When you, as an unsaved human being, say, God, I'm doing stuff for you, God goes, that stinks. And that's how he receives it. He doesn't go, oh, goody, good job, keep it up, do more, and I'll bring you to heaven someday. No, he says, that stinks. A human being, a sinful human being, cannot offer anything to God that would merit God's favor. The second reason this dog is so dangerous is this. Religion creates a false sense of security about eternity. In other words, here are these false teachers in Philippi, and they're actively trying to get the Philippian Christians to abandon the doctrine of salvation by grace and embrace the the idea that you earn salvation by your good deeds. And of course, that's what many churches are doing today. You are going to earn your salvation. Jesus says this is what the reality will be. Not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. And unless you think he's teaching you to earn your salvation there, he's not. Because what is the will of the Father in heaven? To believe in Jesus Christ. Many will say to me in that day, that day of judgment, Lord, Lord, have we not done many religious things? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Religion creates a false sense of security about eternity. False doctrine and false Christians can be so close to the real thing that both they and we think they are real. I had an acquaintance many, many years ago, a guy that I respected greatly in a church when I was a college-age young person, and he was just a couple years older than me. And I was in this church for a time serving, and then I went back to college and and I got a newsletter from the church, and, and, and in it it said, Roger had gone forward to get saved. And I thought, well, that's a darnest thing. And I talked to him, and he said, you know, I, I just fooled him myself. He hadn't fully grasped what it meant to be a believer in Christ. And if you're here today, you need to understand, if you've been trying to do things so God will be happy with you someday, it's not going to work. You've got to throw yourself on Christ and on what he has done. I don't enjoy telling people that their belief system is wrong, but if we don't, we're not loving them. There's another danger here. And the other danger that comes is this. Only true salvation will change your life. Only true salvation will change your life. Um, I, I think this verse out of 2 Timothy really kind of epitomizes it. There are folks out there who have a form or a, you know, it kind of looks like godliness, but they deny its power. In other words, there's religion, there's religious ideas, but it doesn't work, it doesn't change anything. And, and Colossians really, uh, Colossians 2 here really spells out what's going on. Therefore, if you died with Christ, when you believe in Christ, the scripture says your, your sinful nature is put to death and a new spiritual nature is created in its place. 
Romans chapter 6. He says, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why as though living in the world do you subject yourself to regulations or, or man-made rules? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. Which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. Religion. These things have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility and the neglect of the body, but they are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. The only thing that will change your life is God's truth, salvation in Christ that comes to us through God's word. You can be as religious as the day is long. I, I, can, I can picture somebody right now who was devoutly religious in one of the groups that I mentioned previously, and their moral life didn't look any more like a Christian than the people in Hollywood did. And, and yet, they boy, they were there in church every week, every week, every week, and... That's why Paul calls these people by these terrible names. First of all, he calls them dogs. He calls them dogs because their doctrine is vicious and dangerous. In the time of Paul, dogs were not commonly pets. They were much more so just wild creatures that roamed around. Like now we have what we call feral cats, which are cats that are wild and they just, you know, they're, they're dangerous and crazy. Well, that's the way the dogs were. And, you know, they were unclean and they ate dead things and, and it was, they were just, they were vicious and mean. He says, that's what this doctrine is like. This doctrine will send you to hell and this doctrine will keep you from knowing the joy and peace of God. So he called them dogs. And then he called them evil workers. He called them evil workers because the impact of their effort was to create evil. Sometimes we're tempted to buy into the political correctness of our day and say, oh, they people go to different churches, you know, and we're all on different paths to the same place. Unfortunately, that's not true. Many people are on their path to hell, but the people at their church are telling them they're on the path to heaven because you just keep doing all these good things and you're going straight to heaven. And the net effect of that is evil because people go to hell thinking they are doing what God wants them to do. That is to work evil. Thirdly, he calls them the mutilation. He actually uses a word that's a play. He creates a different compound word with the word circumcision. The word circumcision literally means to cut around. And, and uh, if you don't understand what that is, ask your parents later. I won't give you the uh, gory details, but you do need to understand it because God does talk about it. And the word circumcision is a compound word that means cut around. The word here translated mutilation or translated concision in the King James literally means to cut down. And when we compare the idea and the anatomy of circumcision and the concept of cutting down, we understand why they've translated mutilate. And so what he's saying is, look, these people are trying to tell you they're the true circumcision that are truly following God, and the net effect of their work is to mutilate your soul. 
because they are telling you you need to work and earn salvation and it cannot be done. And so they're mutilating your soul. If you cannot face death today with confident joy of a life in heaven, you need to realize that the problem is not with God, but with you. When you believe in the Christ, the Son of God, who died to take your penalty onto himself, and when you put your faith in that, God changes your heart, and he gives you a confidence of heaven, not because you deserve it, just the opposite. You don't deserve it a lick, but Christ has paid your penalty. And so you can gain confidence about heaven because you're confident in him and you're confident in what God has said. If you're struggling to gain the life of joy and peace that Christ offers and that we talk about so much, but it never quite happens, you should consider the possibility that your faith has been in yourself and not in Christ alone. How can you... Avoid being bitten by this dangerous dog of earning your salvation. How can you avoid that? Well, the Apostle Paul gives us the antidote here in, in Philippians 3, uh, verse 3. He says, we are the circumcision, or the real believers, who, number one, worship God in the Spirit, number two, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and number three, have no confidence in the flesh. The false teachers were using the command of circumcision as the basis of their authority, but they were completely misunderstanding. And the thing that they missed, again, was that salvation is always received through faith in Christ. Look at this testimony about Abraham, the first of the Jewish people. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? In other words, do you have to be circumcised to come into relationship with God? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of those who believe. Though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might come to them also, and the father of circumcision to them uh, who, also, who, who not only are of the circumcision, but also who walk in the steps of faith, which our father Abraham had while he was still uncircumcised. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or his, to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. What these false teachers missed, and those today also, is this. Abraham didn't have the law. He didn't have the command of circumcision when God came and said, Abraham, if you go to a land that I will show you, I will make of you a great and mighty nation. And if you will believe me, if you will trust me, and so on, and Abraham said, I believe. And, and so the point Paul is making is salvation has always been by faith. Abraham was the very first of God's chosen people, and he was saved by faith. And so what Paul says here is those who are the truly circumcised, the real believers, first of all, they worship God in the Spirit. And it means to do so from the heart, not just in a physical ritual. There are 
religions who have many physical rituals. You know, you, you have to do this or do that or, or light a candle or bow down or, or be baptized. All these physical rituals. He says, those who worship God worship him in spirit. And this, this even hark, the principle harkens back all the way to the Old Testament. David said, you do not desire a physical thing, the sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These you will not despise. King David said, what you want from me is not just the physical act. You want my heart. Because of the false churches who have so many physical acts, Baptists historically shy away from physical acts in worship. We shy away from many things that have been misused. And even so, though, there are physical elements in our worship. I had a friend years ago who said in the church he grew up in, they always sang the doxology after the offering was taken. And some goofy pastor came and tried to change that order And there was just about a civil war because if you don't sing the doxology, it's not a worship service. Or if you don't stand a certain way or sit a certain way or go a certain way or do a certain way. We're all tempted to think that the physical is more important than the internal and spiritual. To worship God in spirit means we do so from the heart, not just in a physical ritual. So when we worship God in song together, does your mouth sing by itself, or does the song come from your heart? You know, when God says, make a joyful noise unto the Lord, you know why he says that? He he knows some of you can't sing. You're musically challenged. You're the people that are supposed to play play instruments that are unadjustable. (laughs) The point is, it's your heart that matters more than your mouth. And, And just so you know, I really believe that. And if you're a lousy singer and you sing loud in church, I don't care. Because if it's coming from your heart, I had a, I have a pastor friend. He's retired now, but. Boy, that guy is tone deaf. He, he is tone deaf. day is long. I was leading singing, and he was right back here. And I thought, oh, that's nice. He's singing harmony. This is the first time I ever heard him sing. And then I realized he was just lucky once in a while. <laughs> but he, he loves to praise the Lord. Do you love to praise the Lord? Do you worship consistently or continually are you praising God throughout the day one commentator said this the body the physical body of the Christian becomes a temple in which God is worshipped in every thought and meditation and in the performing of every duty the Apostle Paul said real believers Not those who are trying to merit God's favor by doing a bunch of ritual, 
They worship in the spirit, which means it comes from the heart. It's not just a physical. Yes, there's physicality in what we do. The people up here on the worship team, they're doing things. But if that's all it is, it's not worship. And if all we're doing is singing, it's not worship. It's got to come from the heart. Number two, the Apostle Paul said, you want to avoid this dangerous dog? Rejoice in Christ Jesus. This means you don't see yourself as contributing to your salvation. In other words, when, 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 you, when you take stock of being a believer and what that means and how you got it, what do you rejoice in? And I think this passage really sums it up. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen, and he's talking about the choice of salvation here. He has chosen the, wise, the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. And he's chosen the base or the low things, the, the socially low things of the world. And the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are nothing to bring to nothing the things that think they're something so that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. When you stop and think, I'm a believer and I'm on my way to heaven, the very next thought should be, thank you, Jesus. I'm rejoicing in him. If you can't, rejoice in him if you're worried if you're fearful it's because you've never fully believed or if you are flexing your muscle and pounding your fist saying i'm gonna be there on my own you're gonna be desperately disappointed because god wants us to glory in christ the third description of a true believer, the third way you can avoid being bitten by this dog of, of, uh, of error is this. Have no confidence in the flesh. And in some ways, the, the, the last two are kind of flip side of the same coin. Are you rejoicing in Christ or having confidence in the flesh? There's no middle ground here. Have no confidence in the flesh. It means you in no way attempt to earn salvation by good deeds. Mm. Look at verse 7, Philippians 3. This is Paul's kind of summary for himself. He, he, you know, he's recounted his testimony before Christ. I, all of these things, he said, whatever things were gained to me, these I have accounted as a loss for Christ. In other words, I had this whole pile of good deeds on the scale. And I was counting in them. I was confident in the flesh. And over here, uh, I was counting on God saying, that's enough. But now I've taken all of that off. And in place of it, it's Christ. Not me, but Christ alone. The pastor who preceded me in Tukwila, where we used to be before coming to Ferndale, his name was George Cox, for those of you that know George. He told me one time about having a men's breakfast. And he said, uh, and he was a chaplain for the police department there. And 
He got the canine unit to come, police officer and dog, going to demonstrate the dog to people as kind of a fun thing for a men's breakfast. And so one of the things they were going to do was do a search, a search and catch. And, uh, you know, when you do that with a police dog, you don't, you have to let him catch. Because if you don't, you dull his senses and dull his sense of what he's doing. And, and so George, Pastor George, put the big sleeve on, you know, where the dog will bite on it. And he went and hid in the building. And uh, we had a, our auditorium was actually on a second floor. And so he went up and went kind of behind on one side, got ready for the dog. But the dog was smarter than the pastor. There was another way. And the men got to see how good the dog was at doing his job. (laughs) The dogs who teach false doctrine cannot sneak up on you if you know what the truth is and you believe it. You have got to be rejoicing in Christ Worshiping God in the Spirit, having no confidence in the flesh. If that's the way you're believing, if that's the way you're living, you're going to be protected from the, from the constant, constant onslaught of those who would try to tear you away from living in Christ alone. Heavenly Father, we rejoice today to be in Christ alone, to rejoice in Him alone, not to rejoice in anything that we have done which we might foolishly think will gain us your favor. Help us to truly rest in that. I pray in Christ's name, amen.